Remembering 2019 Wimbledon, David Foster Wallace, Roger, and me. So, what did we learn from the 2019 Wimbledon? The lesson seems psychological. Forgive a psychologist for saying so. The two greatest tennis players to grace this measured sport walk away feeling like shit? Bewildering, befuddling, something. What? Most of us don't even aspire to greatness. Goodness has to suffice. Still, the judgments persist. Are we doing this or that well? Does it matter? Of course it does, or we all wouldn't be so damn focused on making our mark and leaving our mark. Hell, even the drunkard wants to boast about their consumption metrics. Should it matter? Should we aspire to greatness, uh, make that goodness? Should it be our marching order? I'd say only if followed by a great big asterisk. And I know we all don't bother to track down those elucidations or clarifications or whatever. A pause, a bit of extended thought might do. Just now, let's flesh out that asterisk. Serena Williams with 23 majors, again loses in the finals at a major that would tie her with Margaret Court's 24. This is three times losing in the finals since besting Groff's Graf's lofty 22. And that was three years ago at the Australian. And there she beat her sister Venus. Not nothing, but still. She had more trouble than most would have predicted getting there. Naomi Osaka looked very good. Not sure we'll go with great. Not yet. I'm not ready to put her work up there with uh, Maria Sharapova beating Serena in the final. On a good day, Serena beats the youthful Osaka. Angelique Kerber and Simona Halep are marvelously accomplished, competent tennis champions. Neither had any real business beating Serena. The vicissitudes, the randomness, the fatefulness of sport... Childbirth, marriage, age, distractions, amazing wealth, lack of meaningful tournament court time, other directedness, age. Plenty to, plenty to help explain Serena not closing this deal. Some have issues with ESPN talking heads anointing Serena the greatest ever and even suggesting she is now the leader in the majors with 11 of Margaret's wins taking place down under on her home turf, some involving amateur competition, and others not featuring all of her top rivals. I don't share those concerns. Serena is at the top. Still, how to interpret these losses in her last three major finals? On the men's side, the Troika of Rafa, Novak, and Roger have so dominated the last 15 to 20 years that one brief generation of stars, the Dominic team, Milos Ronic, Kei Nishikori class, may be frozen out of major wins completely. Okay, Marin Silic did back into that U.S. Open win. Still hard to look at that Nishikori win over Novak in the semis. The next group, the young guns, Alex Verev, Stefanos, Tsitsipas, Karin Kachanov, Borna Koric et al. sure look primed to take over. Not so fast. Dudes appear formidable. 
and then the bright lights of the majors. Serena has not wilted under those bright lights. Non-parial talent and a ferocious will have brought her to the top of the women's game. And there she sits, if somewhat uneasily now. These losses hurt, and they mean something. The talking heads go to great lengths describing how Halep played out of her head, using terms such as perfect to conjure how she beat Serena. As if we saw what we saw. Serena carved up talent comparable to Simona's getting to these finals, and then her game was not all there. It happens. Serena has lost from time to time in her storied career. Dare we deconstruct, get all psychological? I don't think so. Too squishy, too iffy. The talking heads, heads did contortions to avoid the suggestion that Serena choked. Did she? In a sense, of course. The asterisk again. The label choker gets attached to someone and it doesn't wash away easily. To suggest that Serena is a choker is blasphemous. Just plain wrong. Does she have a nervous system? Of course. Is she psychologically complex? We all are. Can the gods of tennis be sons of bitches? Does rain and scheduling affect things at Wimbledon? Serena did not appear to play her best in these finals. Why? Sketchy to go there. I'm more interested in the wherefores. The what nows. How does Serena feel? What does she think? Psychologist stuff. Disconcertment. Serena was not quite Serena. When the best fall short, when the best lose, where does that leave them? Struggling with self-doubt? Wondering where they went wrong? How could they improve? Not so much, I think. They bounce back. They believe. This third loss had to be more troubling for Serena. Is the end near? Is the end at hand? That is the rub. I think it is possible that Serena will retire. Some unspecified medical condition might serve as the pretext. The monumental investment in so much at so many levels for even Serena to compete at the highest levels is exhausting to even contemplate. Serena has been such a fighter, better yet a conqueror, that serious money has her staying the course. When to retire? How to retire? Golf has a senior circuit which helps the transition some. Don't have to go cold turkey. Tennis has tried the same thing in various permutations. The nub remains. How does greatness age? How does greatness recoil? Borg left the game too early. Roddick may have too. Connors refused to go away. How to get this crucial last chapter right? And just as importantly, what is our takeaway? If Serena is feeling crappy about her game, where does that leave your average wise guy and his fledgling efforts to succeed on the smallest of stages? Not necessarily content, though I'd argue we deserve that resting state every bit as much as Serena. David Foster Wallace, a fiend for analytics and a devourer of top athletes' autobiographies, appears obsessed with unlocking and exposing the ingredients of genius.
himself one, this wry wit, this preeminent wordsmith, finds his stride, all right, his greatness, engaging in elucidation and clarification. His own autobiography, a triple redundancy, might well be titled Asterisk. The autobiographical infinite jest would be a breezy read without the asterisk, er, the footnotes. Reading in, on, and between the lines, one sees Dude foretelling his own demise by suicide. Maybe Wallace was scoping the interior lives of these athletic geniuses in the hope of finding a clue, a cue, an insight, something to grasp and hang on to. Wallace played competitive tennis as a teen, and by his own admission was a modest talent. He did have a close-up view of some of the top guns and witnessed one of the greatest of her era, Tracy Austin, a prodigy, a sublime talent, a true athletic genius. Wallace can wax eloquent in describing the Austin file. One gets the impression that he would have gladly shuttled all of that literary mumbo-jumbo for a share of her athletic gifts. Wallace was a determined seeker of greatness. He squeezed those tennis balls in earnest to get there. Eh, he would do no better than good. The prism of Wallace's greatness would be literary. He had his words, and with them he fired back at Austin. He finds her autobiography vapid, cliche-ridden, and concludes that the very absence of all that confounding, belittling, self-doubting interior talk may reside at the core of athletic genius. These guys are actors, not thinkers. Overwrought self-talk never prompted Sampras to go for a second surveys. And no, David, Tracy Austin is neither shallow nor stupid. I rather like her commentary on the Tennis Channel. She is a serviceable talking head. Literary wizardry and the asterisk may capture the essential Wallace. That should not imply that the interior Austin is a blank slate. Wallace killed himself. The clarification and elucidation of this act would require footnotes to rival infinite jest. Newsflash, David. Your death was in no way, shape, or form amusing. As a clinician, I am deeply suspect of the paranoia that inevitably develops with the long-term use of a stimulant such as an MAO inhibitor, but that's another story. The axe you grind most vigorously with the elite athlete is that capacity to navigate through rather than ruminate on the letdowns, the misfires, the missteps, the failures that always accompany athletic endeavor and the mind-body. Acceptance and moving on in the face of the inevitable stumble are hallmarks of athletic excellence. Wallace was unable to subscribe to that code. He was plagued with unending rumination. Depression will do that. He was not the fiction writer he felt destined to be. I do not believe Serena nor Roger is at, an, is at any risk for suicide. I do not believe either suffers from depression. Both are thoughtful, intelligent, generous individuals with what appears to be a depth to their interior worlds. And yes, of course, both are athletic geniuses.
I believe Wallace overstates the notion that such a genius might sport a blindness or dumbness about their gifts that allows them to apply them in an unfettered way. No blank slates here. That Roger and Serena had a bad day at the office does not mean they are bad people. I think they get it. That the best can fall short and exercise some form of acceptance and move on should be a vital message to the rest of us. Hell, a code. As for Federer, his day at this Wimbledon finals was in no sense bad. While he may feel as shitty as Serena, his storyline was not Serena's. Roger had been in a zone, playing near as well as he ever has, which has most of us gasping in disbelief. Dude is about to turn 38. How can that be? Besting blue chip, blue chip talent close to half his age. While the Federer moments still occur, I would argue that the incidents of those magical otherworldly points occurring in the vortex of the highest levels of competitive intensity have waned, possibly being the lone marker of his age in diminution. The notion that this athletic genius has effortlessly wielded his singular gifts is put to the lie by his age, the longevity of his career, and his capacity to bounce back. Dude has determinedly worked on his game, upped his game, if that is possible. He has sculpted a backhand into a potent force. It had always been formidable. Novak worked relentlessly on Roger's backhand in the finals. Shockingly, the Federer forehand, long considered the most, portent, the most potent force in all of sport, let him down at key moments. Wow. One person on the planet could beat Federer at these Wimbledon finals, Novak Djokovic, and he did so by the slightest of margins. A fifth set tiebreaker at Wimbledon. How's that, you say? A new rule change, a fifth set tiebreaker at Wimbledon, only after the combatants had fought to a 12-12 draw. When would that happen in the finals? We, we didn't wait long. The intention of this ruling would be to offset the terminal fatigue of playing in a marathon match and then returning to play in the next round only hours later. Settling the score with a tiebreak always feels a little unsatisfying. The points tallied in a tiebreak might equal that scene in two games. Yet I feel the closure scene with a hold break or a break hold feels more definitive. How Hoyle would have it. The concept of the mini break seems lacking somehow. Right about now, Novak would beg to differ. Number 16 would be his tiebreak title. 7-6-1-6-7-6-4-6-13-12-7-3. Roger won 36 games. Novak won 31 games. This was beyond razor close. More than that, it looked to be Roger's afternoon. Many will argue the greatest tennis match ever. Time will help sort it out. I would argue Rafa's fifth set finals victory over Roger at Wimbledon featured more 
gut-wrenching, heart-stapping, jaw-dropping drama. But let's feel this one for now. I muse over the observation that Roger is the greatest ever. Few would refute this. While not being the greatest of his era, statistically. Rafa might have the edge early and Novak in the later years. To suggest that Roger wilted under the bright glare of Wimbledon, didn't bring his A-game or choked, is absurd. Djokovic beat him. Barely. The look on Novak's face was telling. He was the cat who swallowed the canary. That slight smirk. Fate smiled on him. It's telling. Athletes looking skyward or making the sign of the cross after a success. I don't think these guys are thanking God for being on their side. These guys are the very best at what they do, and yet they always seem to be appealing to a higher power for that extra something. I I think they realize that things clicking so well in an athletic endeavor can require some unknown X factor. Luck, fate, the right bounce, inches, centimeters... All major athletes are superstitious. It's a knot of the cap to the limits of what they can and can't control. For some, that space is slight. Roger versus Novak. The limits of what these two can and cannot control, particularly in a finals at a major, is less than slight. Neither expect to lose. Going head-to-head, what then? The ferocity of wills with these two is unparalleled. That is, if you overlook Rafa, who is, I think, the grittiest athlete to ever play any sport. Back to the smirk. Roger was up 40-15 with the championship on his racket. Two match points. So many huge strengths in the Federer game. None bigger than his serve. How often does Roger deal aces at this moment? Not this time. Novak is an athlete who flaunts hubris. He is the very epitome of the cock of the walk. Chest out. Dude has a big head and he's earned it. He ate the grass. Did he look skyward? He might have. Federer does not lose this match. And he did. Novak's expression captured that. This one slipped into Novak's column. Roger at 20, Rafa at 18, Novak at 16 at the time. The fifth set Federer win at the Australian when Rafa was up a break in the fifth still gnaws. And I'm not even a huge Nadal fan. This Wimbledon reflects maybe a certain temperance in the gods of tennis. That said, anyone, anyone with some degree of contact with this sport will concede that Rogers is the greatest talent to ever grace a court. Likewise with Tiger and golf. Still, the majors count matters. Tiger would happily forfeit some of the legend with a limited number of putts dropping and four more majors in his column. Roger may not hold on to the majors lead. Mox, Knicks. He is the Tiger Woods of tennis, and I'm not sure which athlete I'm extolling more with that observation. Check that. Yes, I am. Tiger. 
Winning a major remains the holy grail in these sports. It wasn't so long ago that catching Sampras at 14 seemed to reach. Now three have stormed past him. I give Novak special mention here as he has had to do it fighting right through the headwinds of the two greatest to play the game. Thing is, winning a major is such a damnably hard thing to do that an argument could be made that none of these three will win another major. It sounds loony, loony, but the recipe for success at a major in the sport of tennis could go there, maybe. For one thing, the competitive talent to push these three aside is there. For another, age and injury. That being said, I believe there is little doubt as to who will be the top three seeds at the then upcoming U.S. Open. Maybe a little argument about two versus three. I think Novak, Roger, then Rafa. Now, at a major, Rafa and Novak are the only two who seem capable of beating Roger. Dare we complete this scenario again? Roger wins one more and maybe then he's safely at the top? It's crazy. Is this, is this thing streaming to 25? I didn't see Roger getting close to 20. How to explain? I'm hoping pharmaceuticals are not behind this. What I'm further hoping is that a new paradigm is emerging in this field of sport that is establishing the 30s as a decade firmly in play for competing at the highest levels and that the whole talent and ferocity of wills thing isn't everything. Federer's comment at Wimbledon on court about winning a major at the age of 37 and inspiring other like-aged souls to keep at it and Djokovic's riposte sorely hoping to follow Roger's lead were priceless. At 32, at that time, Novak would only need one major a year to overtake Roger. Roger and me. On court, interviewed at the end, Roger also made a telling comment about how he would cope with this loss. I'll try to forget. Simple, profound. The field of psychology parses endlessly over the obvious dynamic of living in the present and how this might be better served by studying versus forgetting the past. More often, more often settling for the convenient, serviceable action, distraction. As joyful as Federer can be in victory, he does not seem to take defeat well. This one hurt, and it might have been the crowning achievement of his career. So goddamn close. Foster Wallace had a man crush on Federer. Of this, I'm sure, reading his essay on Roger. His development of the concept of beauty in the context of Roger and his game is touching and his less than thinly veiled connection of this beauty with its first cousins, love and sexiness, has a classically heady Wallace ring. Beauty in a manly sphere is most often tied to images of war, and with the ascendancy of power and aggression in tennis, this warrior beauty appears to well define the game. Yeah, not so fast. Wallace rightly observes that Roger brings an element to his game that routinely bests the frank power and aggression of others. Yes, Federer has power and aggression to burn on court to compete with the young guns. 
he has more. According to Wallace, the Federer oeuvre contains a beauty beyond the tools of the warrior, a beauty that inspires love, a beauty that looks and feels sexy. As I said, this is a bromance. In his medium, Roger generates the complete aesthete. From aggression right on into sexy, he is a true artist. Wallace the aesthete and a once aspiring athlete gets it. Absolutely reveres him for it. Hell loves him. Maybe a dash of envy. These things are always complex. I find Roger prickly and arrogant, as I do Wallace. Ah, astonishingly, I prefer Novak. He's a showman. He seems to bring a bit more perspective at times. Still, Roger is at the top. We must look to him. When he says he'll try to forget, I suspect he'll succeed. I think he'll make a serious run at the next U.S. Open and may win it. I'd put serious money on Djokovic and his closing the gap. Should be interesting. Back to the point. Roger's appeal to forget is a kind of repression, a sort of distraction, something akin to acceptance. Important distinction. Clinical psychology finds repression to be an adaptive coping mechanism. In stark contrast, contrast to denial, which involves a distortion of reality and can trend into the land of psychosis. Roger is not in denial. He may be defying the laws of physics, but he remains firmly anchored in reality. Roger undoubtedly ruminated, ruminated some on this loss. I do believe he would then distract, repress, forget, accept, and move on. Foster Wallace is not an iota as hard on Roger as he is on Tracy Austin in this regard. Interestingly, Austin's career was cut radically short by back injuries in a car accident. She has moved on nicely. Well done, Tracy. For the rest of us, struggling with and through various gradations of mediocrity in all areas of our, of our lives, the lesson from Roger is not easy to parse. Dude pushes, fights, competes, and wins. When he doesn't, he regroups and does. Acceptance is in there, though, though not vitally. For the rest of us, acceptance is vital. The rub, the nub, <sighs> fading, retiring, aging, death. Roger may not be in denial. He is in defiance. He remains great. Can it last? Of course not. Does he make the case beautifully, yes, beautifully, to get up in the face of these forces and literally say, fuck you? Absolutely. Serena is right there with him. We rank and file soldier on, asserting our okayness and sometimes even our goodness. Self-acceptance being at the core of our psychological survival. It is not enough. As all creative creatures know, our existence is predicated on inspiration. Foster Wallace looked to Federer and others. The, the forces got to him. We lost this genius. 
We can still appreciate Roger. He is inspiring. <laughs>